Welcome. This is Anastasia Uglova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. On October 20th, Harvard economist Gregory Mankiw published the Pigou Club Manifesto on his blog. Pigouvian taxes are named after English economist Arthur Pigou, who pioneered welfare economics and developed the concept of taxation to correct externalities. Since Mankiw's manifesto, a number of noted economists, academics, and pundits have signed on, including Gary Becker, Richard Posner, Alan Greenspan, David Frum, Ken Rogoff, Lawrence Summers, Andrew Sullivan, and John Tierney. The backlash against the Pigou Club started on Facebook, where the No Pigou Club garnered the attention of The Economist magazine. So what is the hoopla all about? Cato Senior Fellow and editor of Regulation magazine Peter Van Doren explains. What are some of the costs associated with driving? Economists argue that local pollution, global warming pollution, congestion, and the unpaid costs of accidents, auto accidents, are properly referred to as auto externalities. And where do you fall in the Pigovian tax debate that Greg Mankiw outlined on his blog? Well, normally, economists argue that when there aren't explicit markets for something and there aren't explicit prices for something, that the role of government is to mimic what a market would do and impose a price on something that ought to have a price. In principle, at Cato, we're not actually disagreeing with that. We're not in favor of unpriced things. The things we argue are that government has a difficult time figuring out the right price, and so it's can we figure out the right tax to impose. And even if we could, what does that tax look like when it comes out of the Congress? In other words, if economists could run the world, I'd probably be more comfortable with what they would come up with, although not always. But when it comes out of Congress, there's special interests and things involved. And so the tax that Congress might implement may not look anything like what I as a teacher would advocate in class. So then you have to think about if the political process puts out something that's so distorted relative to what an economist would recommend, maybe the status quo, even though it's imperfect, is not as bad as the perfected status quo once the legislature gets into the act. So that's why what I argue in class might be very different than what I argue in a policy context, because I know Congress isn't going to do it in the way that I might recommend. Instead, special interests are going to modify whatever tax proposal we make, and thus everyone will be exempt that's politically powerful, and then other people won't be, and then that's not a very good price. Some of the debate that I've seen doesn't recognize the so-called public choice defects that come whenever a political system tries to implement what an economist would recommend in a class. But consumption taxes don't have the same distortionary effects that income taxes do, so a Pigovian tax would produce a more efficient outcome given a choice between the two taxation schemes, no? Cato generally is in favor of consumption taxes relative to income taxes. We agree with economists that they're less distorting. In fact, Cato usually calls for something called a flat tax on consumption. Gasoline taxes appear like they might fall into that category, and so why not be for a gasoline tax? Two things. One, the demand for gasoline isn't as inelastic, i.e. it's much more variable than people think. Economist Ian Perry at the Resources for the Future think tank down the road has argued that one of the main effects that would occur if we were to increase gasoline taxes is that vehicle miles traveled wouldn't vary, but instead 
fuel mileage would vary. So there would be a distortion introduced by the gasoline tax because people would change their behavior to avoid it. Economists favor consumption taxes in general because consumption can't be avoided. Uh, you have to eat and you have to do this and you have to do that. But to the extent that you can avoid consumption and change in a certain way, then the arguments that particular tax on a particular consumed item would be good relative to a tax on income, those arguments don't work. And in the gasoline tax, Perry has argued that 40% of the effect of a gasoline tax would be reduced miles traveled, but 60% of the effect would be on changing the fuel used per mile. And because the congestion externalities, the pollution externalities, and the accident externalities are all related to miles traveled, not fuel used, this 60% reduction in fuel used really wouldn't get at those externalities because they're on a mile basis and the miles wouldn't change that much. So in general, yes, Cato's for consumption taxes, but in this particular case, in my view, Mankiw didn't do a good job of looking at what the literature and economics has to say because it's fairly specialized and it's not his field. And that Ian Perry's done very good work and argues that the gasoline tax is not an ideal consumption tax in terms of raising revenue without having distortions on behavior. Say policymakers did decide to institute such a tax, how would they even go about estimating the costs of the externalities involved in order to set the tax to an appropriate level? Well, what we do is it varies by the thing we're talking about, but let's talk pollution. They use a mixture of epidemiological studies, which are cross-sectional regressions in which you have higher pollution in some places and lower pollution in others, and then controlling for other variables, you try to see the higher death rates that occur in places with higher pollution. The difficulty is controlling for everything. In other words, you have to control for the age distribution. A city may have older people, and that's why there's a higher death rate. Very, very controversial literature. People disagree a lot as to whether or not this literature has proven or not, what the health effects are or aren't, and whether the uncertainties involved in that lead to a consensus, if you will, on what the average value of the effect of an additional increment of pollution is on health. The second method is animal testing, i.e. you feed stuff to animals, and then you see the differential death rates, and then there's the problem of inferring from animal studies what those effects would be on human health. That There's a large and long and controversial literature about that that's 30 years old, and it's all the carcinogen testing is basically the animal literature. There's the only two things we have. We have epidemiology with imperfect statistical controls, and we have animal-based toxicology studies. And those are the bases for the calculations that this extra amount of driving, which creates this amount of extra pollution, we think it has this much of an effect on mortality. And that's, as I've tried to convey to you, there's great uncertainties in all those literatures. The economists who then make the cents per gallon tax arguments or cents per mile traveled optimal tax arguments are not reevaluating that literature. They're just taking the findings of those literatures and then incorporating them into a tax calculation. If they were to examine those literatures and realize how controversial the health inferences are, the uncertainty around the optimal gas tax would be even larger than the calculations in the literature. But regardless of how the externalities are calculated, you're still not in favor of the gas tax. So how would you get drivers to internalize the costs of the externalities that they impose on society, if not with a gas tax? 
For congestion, we already have experiments around the world where we have computer-operated roads with time-varying tolls that vary with the congestion level. There's an experiment in California, two experiments actually that have done this. Uh, Stockholm has just gone through a congestion pricing experiment. So basically, I think we can deal with the congestion through computer-operated systems that signal to motorists, if you enter this road, we'll guarantee you 55 miles an hour if you pay this much. And that toll will vary from hardly anything at midnight to 6 or 7 or $8 for 10 miles. I mean, something like 70 or $0.80 cents a mile to travel in an urban area during peak rush hour. On the accidents, that's more difficult. Basically, people's insurance rates don't take into account the density of the area in which they drive. So in other words, everyone's insurance rates are sort of right on average, but they're too much for people who drive off-peak, and they're too little for people who drive on-peak. And so we'd have to have some system that said, if you drive on-peak, you're going to cause much more damage and much more congestion if you have an accident. I mean, think of when an accident happens on a road during rush hour. The main externalities aren't the actual victim's costs. It's all the people who can't move anywhere because two lanes are blocked on an interstate highway. The appropriate accident charge would have to include all that congestion that arises when someone has an accident. So that's conceptually really difficult to do. No one has a good answer for how to properly price that. On emissions, Cato published a paper some years ago, almost 10 years ago now, on remote emission sensors. In other words, you have sensors by the road, and they sense most of the pollution comes from very few cars, cars that are old and cars that are not well-maintained. And if we could target fines on those cars or pay them to get off the road, particularly during rush hour, that actually would be an effective way to try to deal with emissions. We published a paper by Dan Klein, who's an economist in California some 10 years ago, making those kinds of arguments. They make sense, I think, in an L.A. area, which has lots of pollution and lots of money could be spent hooking up these remote sensors to make it all work. If you don't do that, you don't want a gasoline tax, you want a vehicle mileage tax because pollution is on a per-mile basis. Whenever you drive, you emit stuff, and a vehicle mileage tax that varied by jurisdiction. In other words, L.A., it ought to be higher, and then in the Dakotas, it ought to be much lower. If we could somehow get the public sector to do that, maybe on a county level, then that would be a second or third best way to deal with the externalities from pollution. If gas taxes are only a second best solution, then how did such a strong academic consensus form around this idea? There isn't a strong academic consensus about this idea. There are some famous economists who, in their undergraduate teaching, have used gasoline as a, quote, obvious example of some general rules that economists have. I agree with those general rules. It's just that the specifics of gasoline aren't exactly what some of these folks argue. They're not specialists in thinking about environmental pollution. Most of them are generalists or have some other specific field that they're famous for. Greg Mankiw is one of them. As I said, the best work in this has been done by Ian Perry and Ken Small and other colleagues at RFF, a think tank dedicated to environmental economics. It's called Resources for the Future. And since the Mankiw blog, I've actually read that literature and had read some of it before. And those economists who are very well trained, some are liberal and some are not, but they're specialists in environmental externalities. 
they argue, in fact, the title of one of the articles I read was The Uneasy Case for an Increased Gasoline Tax. And so even economists who know all the general arguments about in favor of consumption taxes and decreasing income and labor taxes, they agree with all that, but they just say, in this particular case, the gasoline tax is probably not a well-targeted tax and fitting those general kinds of arguments. If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional, one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.